going to move on now to talk about time critical transfer. So uh, what happens when we're not doing it, when we're asking you to do it, I suppose. Um, so first definition, what, what is a time critical transfer? To me, all transfers are time critical. It's critical that I get this transfer done in time before my shift finishes. Um, but I suspect that's not what we're supposed to be talking about. Um, so what do you think of when we talk about time critical transfer? Um, time is precious and in certain situations time is life. So time is brain, time is myocardium, uh, time is gut. Uh, and those are the situations that we're really talking about. So in essence, when you're moving any patient from A to B, um, particularly inter-hospital, you, you should be moving for an escalation in care. So you're moving them, exposing them to the risks of moving them um, to change the treatment they're going to receive. Time critical situation, that's a very particular thing. So they're usually going for an intervention um, or something that's not available to you locally. So neurosurgeons, vascular surgeons, um, uh, pediatric surgeons who are going to explore the bowel, for example. Um, in those situations then, you start a, a bit of a balancing act as to what's the most appropriate way uh, to move this uh, patient. Do you have time to sit and wait for us to mobilise ourselves, to get out to you, to get a handover, to get the patient transferred back in, or is that going to result in a worse outcome? So there's always a bit of a discussion around this, um, and often the, the kind of final arbiter is, um, is there a, the accepting speciality in the case of neurosurgery. Quite often I will go to them and say, will this make a difference to you if we get this child in quicker? Um, and surprisingly, often they say, no, it's not going to change what we do. We're not going straight to theatre. Um, there are a few situations where it's a, a direct into to theatre that you actually will have to, to rush at. As often happens with these kids, so the time criticals usually happen at the worst point in the shift. So it's usually about three hours before you're due to go off. So you know you're going to be going out the door uh, to do it um, and you know you're going to be late back. Or it happens in the middle of the night when you've got less staff around and you're now going to be leaving your unit exposed um, with less cover on the ground. And often this is what it feels like at that point. The realisation kicks in. You, it's not Tudor. <laughs> I wasn't getting him to pose for photos earlier, no. That's just some random dude on the internet that looks like Tudor. Um, so you, you'll go through the stages of grief. So you'll go through denial. I'm not doing it. It's not me. You'll go through anger. I don't want to do it. Don't make me do it. And finally, you'll accept. You'll accept that you have to move on to do this trip. Accept. Very specifically, so uh, those of you, some of you may have done it, the, the NAPSTAR course, uh, which is run by ALSG, which is Neonatal and Paediatric Safe Transfer and Retrieval, um, which is a course that's aimed uh, around um, those who do transport quite regularly uh, and those who may be put in the position that they are uh, tasked with doing it. The mnemonic uh, from the course there, as you can see, so assessment, control, communication, evaluation, preparation, packaging, and transportation, tries to break down the steps, tries to highlight some of the key features um, and things that you should be considering um, before you get in the ambulance with the child. Um, in regards to time critical, um, so what are the issues? What are the key things that you're going to uh, be faced with and start to worry about? So assessment. What is wrong with this patient? Why are they moving? What might go wrong with them? Um, what else can I do uh, to improve the situation um, to get me ready to head out the door? Control and communication kind of go hand in hand. 
Somebody has to take control over organising this move. It's a bit like a resus scenario. You need somebody who is uh, juggling, um, making sure that all the things are happening. That's where the control comes in from, uh, or comes into rather. You need to make sure that when you're asking people to do things, they are the right person. They are able to do that, and they're able to report back to you. There's no point asking for somebody to book an ambulance because I can guarantee nobody will book an ambulance. Um, you need the right person with the right information to go to the phone to make sure that ambulance control realise that this patient needs to be moved now. There is a tendency um, with ambulance control to consider any patient within a hospital environment to be in a place of safety. So you will have to explain to the um, person taking the call that this is a time critical transfer that's going for urgent neurosurgical intervention. Otherwise you will be bumped down a list and can find that you're having to make several phone calls to get the ambulance to you. Um, communication. It's amazing how many phone calls it takes to get uh, a patient from A to B. Um, you have to phone the intensive care unit, you have to phone the receiving speciality, you have to phone ambulance control, um, you have to discuss with the uh, parents and the family um, to make sure they're updated and understand what's going on, what, uh, what's likely to be happening. So there's a constant, constant communication. And I can hand on heart tell you that that's usually where this breaks down. Um, for transport in general, more commonly, things go wrong because the communication falls or fails at some um, crucial uh, point. So the information that should be passed on is neglected. And that's why we get a little bit obsessive about kind of checklists, um, about having systematic approaches to taking the referral information off you to make sure we're less likely to, to miss things and drop things. Often the communication is wrong on our side. Don't feel I'm having a go at you. Um, we forget to tell you we're coming. And we forget to tell you that we're going to be delayed. Um, so it is a, a two-way thing, but it, it's vital it's done properly. Evaluation, so where is the child now and where do they need to be um, in order to be ready to move? Uh, so what uh, steps can I take to improve the situation? Preparation and packaging, partly that's the child, partly that's your kit. Now depending where you work, you may have a really slick system that's set up. So you have transport equipment sitting on a set of shelves down in ED, you have your ventilators charging, your monitor charging, you have transport kit for all ages ready to grab and go. How many of you have that set up? Okay, <laughs> one hand at the back. Um, most places it's not that situation. Most places you are gonna to have to kind of start gathering up the kit that you need to do this. Problems with that, the kit may not be checked, the kit may not be charged, the kit may not be working. Um, the kit may not be familiar to you. So at the point that you're in the ambulance in the middle of the night, uh, you now are in charge of a piece of kit that you don't know how to work. That's where the preparation comes into this. That's why things like uh, Napstar are useful. Um, but most importantly, what's useful is if you are potentially going to be put in the position that you're shoved out into the, the dark in the back of an ambulance, you familiarise yourself with that kit so that you're ready to use it if and when the situation arises. Packaging, packaging of the patient, making sure that they're going to be safe. Um, packaging of yourself, making sure you're going to be safe. Have you got the right clothing? Have you got a phone? Do you have money if you're going for a long trip or a flight? Um, have you some way of kind of looking after yourself? Are you fed and watered? Um, the, the kind of basics. Have you been for a pee? Really important. Don't get caught short in the back of an ambulance. Transportation, um, mentioned briefly, get your ambulance, get your ambulance booked early. Um, ambulances are a scarce commodity. You'd be horrified if you knew how many ambulances cover the Belfast area, for example, at, w at any one time. Um, so we don't want to tie them up unnecessarily, but equally you don't want to be in the position that the child's packaged on a trolley ready to move and you're waiting for the ambulance to arrive 30 minutes or an hour later. That's too much delay. That's going to change outcome. 
I couldn't miss the chance just to do a bit of advertising. So having plugged Napstar, just to tell you that we are going to be running the Napstar course on uh, 6th and 7th of June uh, in Belfast here. And places are available, so just go on through the LSG website uh, if that's something that would be of interest. I can tell you I did Napstar or Panstar as it used to be, um, having been appointed as a clinical lead for paediatric transport, and I learned a lot from this course. I thought this was, this was very useful, primarily around the, the, the kind of softer stuff, a lot about the communication team working side, um, more than perhaps the day-to-day, -day, but I think it'd be very useful for most people. So now we get to the eternal balance, ready, steady, go. When are you ready to move? What level of comfort uh, are you going to have? So ordinarily, what I'd be standing here preaching, any patient you're going to be transporting has to be stable. Any interventions you're going to have done, you're going to do in your referring unit before you move. A good transfer is a transfer where you do nothing with the patient during. You make small talk with the parents, and all goes well, and you hand over at the other end. We don't have that luxury anymore, so we're going to have to start pushing the boundaries a little bit more and starting to accept that the ideal may not be perfect, but it's good enough, and sometimes good enough is, is the best thing you can do for these children. So you will have to um, cut back your interventions and make sure that you're not spending too, too long kind of staying and playing um, and that you're actually getting on and getting moving. Uh, I've looked at various protocols through there. This is from kids, um, their time critical transport. I thought this was lovely. Um, so they actually have a, a kind of a check built into the system. Um, and as you can see, we are so many minutes since this patient was accepted as time critical and so many minutes since the team arrived. Summary of where we are, what's concerning us, what's worrying us, preparation. The goal is to move. What's currently preventing that? And I think having somebody ask you that question every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, uh, is a useful thing just to just keep the system going on and on and on. Stuart talked earlier, various people have talked about the ACCM um, sepsis paper. One of the recognitions about that was it can take two, two and a half hours to get central line into the patient. Does that patient need the central line? Is it going to change what you do in transit? Commonly the answer is no, but it's very easy to get tax fi task fixated in trying to get the line in, and I can't move till I get that line, I can't move till I get that line. This question, I think, or this process is a really nice way of just nudging you out of that behaviour um, and having somebody as team leader who's standing saying, right, that's 15 minutes. What's it going to take before we're ready to go? If you're not ready to go, you're not ready to go. You stay, you sort out any immediate problems. The worst thing you can do is take an unstable patient into an ambulance unprepared and have them deteriorate. But it's a balance. Possibly the most grandiose thing I've ever done in my life. I'm having delusions of grandeur. I'm quoting myself in a presentation. <laughs> Worry about my mental health. Uh, but genuinely, this is a question I ask myself every trip I do, whether it's in the hospital or out of the hospital, um, between hospitals, whether the kid's stable or the kid's sick. What's the worst thing that could happen? Occasionally, we'll have a chat in the back of the ambulance and actually, uh, similar to pilots, we always compare ourselves to pilots in terms of aviation and medicine, but pilots pre-takeoff, uh, uh, at a point where you're sitting on the runway before they hit the jets in, the pilot and the co-pilot are usually having a chat saying, right, if we get to beyond takeoff speed and a bird hits that engine and we lose it, what are we going to do? And they just, they just drill. It's a two-minute chat. I think that's a really useful thing for us to do in medicine as well particularly if you're heading out the door with an unstable and um, time-critical transport. So your, your head-injured patient, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, they get cerebral edema, they're going to start coning. What am I going to do about that? Well, I'm going to hyperventilate them, I'm going to give them some hypertonic, I'm going to deepen their sedation. 
Do you have all those things ready, available to grab? Have you worked out your doses so that you can give them with minimal uh, interruption? I think the only way to be prepared for that is to plan for that. So ask that question uh, and ask it often. You can say you're quoting me. <laughs> key to this whole thing and key to everything we talk about in transport is safety. This is a video that's taken from a conference in Las Vegas. Many of you will have seen this because I like to show this video because it, it gets the point across nicely. This is a, a parked ambulance. This ambulance is not moving. It's an American style ambulance with a bench. That window up behind you, there's going to be a car coming in about 45 miles an hour that's going to hit on the front side and then we're going to see what happens uh, post-impact. It's amazing how quiet everybody goes whenever you show that video. Are ambulances safe places to be? No, they're hostile environments. For genuine reason, we refer to them as hostile environments. There's approximately 6,500 ambulance crashes per year in uh, the United States. Uh, costs about $500 million uh, a year. Um, and many of those accidents will be uh, high speed. Um, so traveling two vehicles head on, so you get cumulative impact rather than a static vehicle being hit. Um, most common time to be hit, traveling on lights and sirens, okay? How uh, much time do you think you save on average by using lights and sirens? Okay, show of hands, more than 10 minutes. Between, f more than 10? Between five and 10? Between one and five? And less than one. Okay, so the study suggests mixture of environments, Tom's question, um, you save somewhere between uh, about 40 seconds uh, and 360 seconds, okay? It's difficult to do, I agree. Um, essentially, the, the way they do it is uh, run the same journey again uh, on lights and sirens and off lights and sirens. So it's not like for like, but it's not as much time as we all think. The difficulty with who's been in the back of an ambulance that's on lights and sirens? How much fun is that? <laughs> Isn't it awful? You're being thrown around the back of the ambulance. You can't hear anything. You're starting to feel sick. The patient's uh, suffering because you're accelerating and decelerating rapidly. Um, so their physiology is changing real time. And you're going to save yourself maybe a minute, two minutes to arrive at that hospital. Really? Your odds of being involved in an accident have increased. Your odds ratio has gone up 2.9. So your chance of actually being involved in, a, in an accident by having lights and sirens on um, have massively increased. So to me, uh, the best thing you can do is get your ambulance driver to, to drive lights and sirens for a smooth, progressive journey. So if I hit traffic in the West Link, I can put lights and sirens on. I'm going to go down the middle, move the cars out of the way. What I'm not going to do is 80 miles an hour banging side to side because I don't want to be involved in a situation like this. What can you, oh, what can you do to protect yourself then? Uh, 
Importantly, uh, make sure everything's secure in the back of the ambulance. So that's my diagram of what the back of a frontline ambulance looks like. Two seats, one seat at the top, patient trolley, couple of cupboards. Cupboards in a frontline ambulance are full of paramedic kit, um, so you will have nowhere to store your stuff. So you want to minimise the amount of kit you're carrying, and anything you can, you want to make sure it's well strapped in and well secured, um, so that in the event of an accident, it doesn't become a missile. You are a fantastic missile, so do not be out of your seat in a moving ambulance um, for any reason whatsoever. If you have to do anything to the patient, you stop the vehicle. You make sure you know how to stop the vehicle. How are you going to communicate with the crew to say pull over? Paramedics are some of the worst. Apologies to any paramedics in the room. Um, but paramedics are some of the worst people for standing in the back of ambulances, holding on, having a chat whilst they're moving. 80 kilos of hairy paramedic hitting you at speed is going to end badly. Insist they sit down and put a belt on, okay? Try and plan ahead so that you don't have to stop the vehicle. So if you're sitting in that kind of front seat at the side, run an extension line out from the patient's IV so that you can give bolus fluids, bolus drugs um, without having to stop the vehicle. Plan ahead, as I talked earlier, if you are going to have to stop and do things, make sure you can find somewhere safe to, to pull over. If you work in Northern Ireland, these might be familiar to you. So these are the regional critical care transport trolley. As Lindsay mentioned, they look very similar to, uh, to our trolley. Um, they're a really, really good resource and they sit in every DGH. They come pre-built, pre-loaded, so you've got your uh, ventilator, you've got your syringe drivers, your monitoring. Um, you have uh, an inverter cabinet so you can plug it into the back of the ambulance so that everything that's now running is running off power. One of the things you want to avoid is running out of power or running out of gas, um, and it's always useful to plan ahead to make sure. You patient's well secured to that, so ideally what you want is the patient fixed to the trolley, the trolley then clips in, the Ferno trolley, so it clips into the back of the ambulance, and these are all roll tested and crash tested, so in the event of a collision, nothing should move. Um, bags and other things might, but that cuts down the, the heavy stuff generally. Next time, this is something that's really important, debrief. Even if it goes perfectly, debrief. What can we do better? You can always do something better. Did the kit work properly? Is there something that we were missing? Would it be useful to have uh, a grab checklist on the wall? Would it be useful to drill this simulation? Would we um, change the team members that we sent out? There's always something that you can learn from this. So try and find five, 10 minutes. It can also be a bit traumatic and stressful to be involved in this if you're thrown into to these situations in the middle of the night. So debrief as a team is useful. A cup of tea, sit and have a chat. How did everyone think that went? Where, uh, went? Is everyone all right with everything that happened? This can get quite heated. People can get quite caught up in the emotion of it. And this is where teams can fall out. So do try and look after each other. Do try and look after the team that have been involved in this situation. Coming back from one of these transfers to go straight into your next elective anaesthetic case or your next uh, emergency anaesthetic case is maybe not the best thing you can do. You might need a bit of time to kind of de-stress. That's me. Any questions? Oh.